A reading from the book of Genesis. Now Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make, you, make of you a great nation, and I will <clears throat> bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. A reading from the book of Hebrews. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The word of the Lord. Well, again, good morning. I did not introduce myself. My name is Paul. I'm the senior pastor here. For those who are visiting, again, a warm welcome on behalf of our family of faith. I'd like to do something right now. Um, This whole uh, vision behind our church of building a lasting community, a flourishing uh, city, and a gospel movement is alive in this place, in this community today. We've been praying so long to send our kids on a trip like they just went on and to champion them and to show our support for them. I want to invite any of the students that went on the trip to stand as they feel comfortable right now. And I'd like our church family to show our support to Cody and all the leaders that went and to these students. Let's give them a round of applause. Come on, One Fellowship. You can do better than that. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Awesome. You may be seated. We believe in you, and we're championing you, and we're so excited to see what God continues to do in your lives. Well, this morning, we have a special guest coming to our pulpit. Now, I recognize some of you have probably never heard this gentleman teacher preach, but others maybe have. Uh, We got to know Kenneth Padgett somewhere around 2015 or 16 as he and his family joined our church. And through a discernment process, uh, we were able to send Kenneth and support Kenneth as he went to seminary at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and pursued and received his master's in Old Testament. From there, we were able to uh, help send and support Kenneth as he is in the thick of getting his PhD in Old Testament from the University of Aberdeen under a great Old Testament scholar. And uh, in this process, Kenneth, over the years, has served in a pastoral intern capacity with us and a staff capacity. And in recent days, he's been invited to um, be a co-founder of a publishing company called Wolfbane Books. And the goal of Wolfbane Books is to bring the gospel back into the home, back into the home of families. And maybe that's not the perfect mission statement. It's close enough. And um, Kenneth, if you could raise your, I think your, yeah, come on up. You can just show everyone one of your books that you're going to share from today. It's beautiful. And and Kenneth has this gifting of creative design matched with a gift of teaching. And so I've challenged Kenneth. Some of you've heard him. Some of you have not heard him. But I've challenged Kenneth. I said, Kenneth, here's the challenge. Preach the whole Bible today. (laughs) I'm dead serious. He has a gift of storytelling. And he is going to do a flyover of the entire Bible today. So with that, let's give him a warm round of applause. 
Thank you so much. It's so good to be back and with you all. Um, yeah, so I wrote, I co-wrote uh, with my buddy. Uh, this is a family discipleship picture book. Um, this is the sweet and poetic version of what I'm going to do long and kind of nerdy today. But it's the whole story of the Bible, so we'll send someone out for a dinner run later. They'll bring it back, but we're going to just dive in. We're going to we're going to see what God has for us in the story. Uh, let me begin by praying. <sighs> Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, here's a question. What is the Bible? Every morning... We do Bible time in my house, and uh, when we get together, no matter where we are in the story, we're sitting around the kitchen table, and I ask my daughters, what is the Bible? What are we getting into? What are we opening up here? And we have this answer that they could, they could tell you, is the Bible is a library of books that contain the true story of the whole world. It's God's word, so we know it's faithful and true. And it's this story part that I want to talk about this morning. The Bible is the true story of the whole world. And this reality is particularly beautiful because we are wired for story. Human beings experience life through story. The most important moments of our lives are bound up in stories. The most important truths come through and are passed on in stories. Andrew Peterson, a modern storyteller, says it this way. If you want a child to know the truth, tell them the truth. If you want a child to love the truth, tell them a story. And I think that applies for all people. The Bible is a story, and as all stories are wont to do, this one starts with words. The world began with words. Consider Genesis 1. When God slung the stars and the planets into the night sky, he did it with words. At his command, the dry land rose up from the watery waste. And God said that we hear so often repeated in Genesis 1, led to the seas teeming with life and the great herds roaming the plains. God speaks. He has a voice. And he does, he uses his voice to do wondrous things. But he doesn't just say, let there be. No, God is a storyteller, a master storyteller. His words are alive and active and they take the shape of a grand narrative that sweeps across human history and pries open the inner chambers of the human heart. God wants us to know him deeply. So he reveals himself to us in a story. So here's another question. What is the story? Can you recount your favorite stories. My kids, when I walk in the door, they've experienced a show or they're reading a book and uh, they just tell me the story. Like 
They're just able to count off the story. It's, it's had meaning for them. It's affected them profoundly, and they can rattle off the story. Think of the Lord of the Rings, or the story of Star Wars, or the Chronicles of Narnia. Could you say the story of the Bible? Could you recount the story of the whole Bible? Well, that's what we're going to try to do this morning. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to follow a theme, a theological thread through the story. This thread is God's presence with his people, this beautiful reality that God desires to dwell with his people. And I like to call this the golden thread that kind of binds the whole story together. This reality that God wants to dwell with his people is the foundation upon which the rest of the story sits. All of the other theological truths, all the other realities about God are aimed at and are pointing to his desire to dwell with his people. And I hope we see that this morning. So we're going to start in the beginning. So here's the question. What exactly is God creating in Genesis 1 and 2? What is God creating? Another question is, why is God creating it? In Genesis 1, God is building a house. In Genesis 2, he's fashioning it into a home, a home for him and his people. Remember, God walks in the midst of the garden. It's not just Adam and Eve. The goal of creation is that we would dwell in God's life-giving presence forever and ever in a world without end. Let me say that again. The goal of creation. You open the Bible, you start reading. The goal of what God is doing is that we would dwell with him forever and ever. The core reality at the very heart of the biblical story is this. God made us to be with him. Eden is the place where God's space and man's space overlap and interlock. Eden, in Eden, humans and God dwell together. This is what God made. Humans were made to dwell in the presence of God. We were meant to flourish in his presence, in his life and light. So you have Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve in the garden. They're told to be fruitful. They're told to multiply they're told to exercise dominion. They're cultivating the ground. They're expanding the garden out to the outer reaches of the world. Can you just imagine, just with me, use your imagination here. And like, how does that, how, what, what happens? How does that end? You can imagine that no one's dying. There's no sin. There's no pain. There's no tears. You can imagine a global garden city where God is the source of life and light and his people are flourishing in his presence forever and ever. This is what God is up to in the first two chapters of the Bible. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we are not currently living in a garden city. I look around and I see some life and light, but I also see so much death and darkness. Something has gone wrong. Something has gone terribly wrong. Even if this, even if today is your first time in church, 
You probably know the story of Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, the serpent, the tree, the fruit. Adam and Eve reject God's good vision for the world, but also they doubt God's word and disobey their creator and king. And what's the punishment? They are exiled out of Eden and into the wilderness, in the lower lands of the world, out of the place of eternal thriving and into the place of terminal striving. The story of Genesis 3 through 11 is a story of humanity tumbling head over heels down and away from the presence of God. Imagine a fish out of water and you'll have a pretty good visual for what humanity is like during this time. The world is filled with the violent contortions of human rebellion. At the lowest moment, we experience the height of human hubris. All the people come together to build a city and a tower so that they can put their name, their greatness in the heights of heaven. By their own effort and for their own glory, all mankind comes together and seeks to elevate themselves into the realm of God. This man-made mountain of human pride and ingenuity, this massive memorial built with cutting-edge technology designed to pierce the heavens is unseeable from the throne of God. Genesis 11 tells us that God has to yarad. He has to come down to see this massive structure. Our man-made greatness is actually quite pathetic when seen from the right perspective. The point of Genesis 1 through, or 3 through 11 is that we cannot flourish outside of God's presence, no matter how hard we try. So how does God respond to this prideful project in Babel? He sends the people away confused and scattered all over the earth. He confuses their languages and scatters them. Imagine if right now I was closing the Bible and walking off and that was the end of the story. Okay, so God was going to do something amazing. He started it. He launched it. It was awesome. It was going somewhere great. And we totally screwed it up. We blew it in rebellion, in pride. And God exiled us out of his presence. And then he's confused us and scattered us further. And here we are alone and lost. Left to ourselves. All the glory and wonder of Eden lost in humanity's prideful rebellion. Genesis 1 through 11 is a literary unit that ends in total tragedy. But this isn't the story that God is telling. This isn't the kind of storyteller that God is. God isn't telling a tragedy. He's telling a comedy in the classical sense. A comedy is a story that has a happy ever after ending. And we're not there just yet. Let's follow along and see how this ends. Immediately after the scattering judgment of Genesis 11, 
This is profound. Right after Genesis 11 is Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, we have the call of Abraham. Right after, no time, God scatters. He confuses their languages and scatters them over the earth away from his presence. And then immediately he calls a man called Abraham. Immediately he initiates his plan of redemption. Some of you might know this when you're thinking through the story of the Bible, there's a common rubric of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And I like that scheme, but often what we do in that is we go from Genesis 3 to Matthew 1. We go from creation, fall in Genesis 3, and then we'll go to Jesus, redemption. That, that's not how the biblical story works. They're, the biggest part is in between those two Two moments. God's, God initiates his plan for redemption in Genesis 12. Immediately after Babel, God calls Abraham. He tells him that he needs to go to a lush land in the West that he will make, and that he will make his family like the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. He tells him that through his offspring, God is going to gather up the families, the scattered families of the earth. And he's going to gather them back into his presence for blessing. Remember the vision for Eden. Remember what God is doing in the world, how his story is going. Abraham, the call of Abraham, in the call of Abraham, literally like verse three of Genesis 12, he's like, hey, I'm, I'm all those scattered families, I'm going to bring them back through your family. This is a pro tip, understanding the story of the Old Testament. Why are we following these people? Why the Israelites? Why are we following the Jewish people? Why the descendants of Abraham? Just always keep that in your head, no matter where you are. Somehow, through these people, God is going to reverse the curse of Babel. Abraham is a direct response to the scattering judgment of Babel. So the story of redemption has begun. Remember, the goal of creation is that we would dwell in God's life-giving presence. So while the people of God, Abraham's descendants, are roaming the wilderness in tents, God has them set up a special tent so he can dwell in their midst. This is the kind of God that we have. He, he comes and pursues us in the wilderness. In the second half of Exodus, we see that this tent, the tabernacle, is adorned with all kinds of Edenic imagery. Trees and flowers are all over the interior. It's a well-watered place with precious metals and stones. There are too many connections for me to draw out here, or we actually will be calling out for dinner. But just go and read in Exodus the description of the tabernacle and then cross-reference it to Genesis 2, and you'll see that this is Eden coming, sp sprouting up out of this wilderness ground. But the biggest connection between the two is that the tabernacle is how God is once again, for the first time since Eden, how he is dwelling in the midst of his people. In Exodus 40, God's glorious, fiery presence fills the tabernacle. 
He meets his people in the dark, dusty wilderness and goes with them to the promised land. Abraham's family, you remember, the one by whom God is going to gather up the scattered families of the earth, that family, eventually they make it to that lush promised land and God doesn't dwell in a tent anymore. He starts to dwell in a house. The tabernacle becomes the temple, the center of the city, the center of God's people, the center of what God is doing is filled with the life and light of God himself. King David has the vision for it, but his Solomon's son builds it. And like the tabernacle, the temple is filled with arboreal and Edenic imagery. And in 1 Kings 8, God's fiery presence, his glory descends and fills the temple. God's tabernacling presence is followed by his templing presence. Okay, so the story's going pretty good. So we had a hiccup, all right? A massive one. All the people that God desired to dwell with him forever and ever have been confused and scattered all over the world away from his presence, but God has started a plan for bringing them back into his presence. I mean, if you know the details, you know there's problems happening like here and there. But, you know, at the big, the big picture, God has kicked off his plan to redeem the world and he's dwelling with his people at this point in the story. This is great. But what if I told you that Israel rejects God's good vision for the world? What if I told you that they doubted God's word and they disobeyed their creator and king? What if I told you that God exiled them out of that land and into the wilderness and into the bondage of a prideful city named Babel? I know what you're thinking. No, 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 you're, confuse, you're confusing Israel's story with Adam and Eve's story. God makes a people for himself, puts them in a lush land where he dwells in their midst. They rebel and are exiled out of that land and end up in Babel. Have you noticed that Adam and Eve's story is Israel's story? I also know what the nerds are thinking. They're thinking, well, technically, the exiled humans in Genesis end up in Babel, uh, while the Israelites actually end up in Babylon, to which the Hebrew nerds are responding. Right now, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, well, actually, those are the exact same words in Hebrew. Babel. Babel and Babylon, they're different in our English Bibles, but they're not different in the Hebrew. It's the same place so that you see the same movement. God's people have a pattern of leaving him for their own glory, their own prideful reasons. But we have to tell the nerds to just sit down and listen. Stop distracting us. <laughs> so the Old Testament ends with God's own people scattered and confused. 
It is in the throes of exile and foreign occupation that God triggers the fulfillment to the promise he made to Abraham all those years ago. Again, even if today is your first time in church, you probably know the basics of the Christmas story. On a dark night, a baby is born to lowly parents in the midst of animals and laying in a feeding trough. This baby is named Emmanuel, which means God with us. We know him as Jesus, which means Yahweh's salvation. God meets his people in the dark and dusty wilderness. We've already seen it. John 1 says that God became flesh and tabernacled in our midst, and we beheld his glory. It's the same Greek word for tabernacle and dwell in our midst. Jesus bursts into the story just as we're thinking the whole thing is derailed, and he comes with the good news that his kingdom is arriving here. On the cross... He overcomes the darkness of sin and rebellion for us. In his resurrection, he breaks the bonds of death and exile for us. And in his ascension, he takes his rightful place on the throne of heaven as the saving king of the world. Jesus is making all things new. He has launched a new creation project that will bring his scattered people into his presence. Listen to the Great Commission and hear it as a response to the scattering of Babel, at Babel. Listen to this. And Jesus approached and spoke to them saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the ages. Jesus comes and gathers a small group of Abraham's descendants and tells them that now is the time to go and bring the scattered families of the earth into God's presence for blessing. But as we've seen before, the tabernacling presence of God makes way for the templing presence of God. Remember the fiery pillar that, of God's glory that descended on the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40? And remember how that same thing happened again in 1 Kings 8 with the temple? Well, it happens one more time in scripture. Do you know where? Acts chapter two. Listen to this. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in the same place. Kind of like we are right here. And suddenly a sound like violent rushing wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And divided tongues like fire 
appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them the ability to speak. Paul says to the Corinthians, do you not know, you, plural, the church, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells within you? In the Old Testament, if you want to be in the presence of God, you go to the temple. Now, if you want to be in the presence of God, you go to church. The gathered family of God, filled with the Spirit, is the temple. Do you not know that we are the temple? Filled with God's Spirit? This isn't the only mind-blowing thing happening in Acts chapter 2. What, what have we been waiting for? What's the problem What's the resolution? So God, so Jesus told his disciples to go and to gather up the nations, but we haven't seen them go yet. So now we see that they're filled with the templing presence of God. Immediately after that, listen to this. The Jews were residing in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred that we heard in the room, the crowd gathered and was in confusion. So you have the nations, they're together, but they're confused. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were astounded and astonished, saying, Behold, are not these who are speaking Galileans? How do we hear each one of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and, Elamite, and Elamites and those residing in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya toward Cyrene and the Romans who were in town, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. This is where, you know, you're reading and you're like, ah, da, 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 da. okay, a bunch of people are here, right? I got it. Why is he including this here? Why is he giving me a table of all the nations? Because in Genesis 10, we have a table of nations. We have a list of nations. In Genesis 11, those nations are together and they're confused and scattered. And the confusion is a language confusion. And all, the, all these people are gathered together and on the day of Pentecost from all these places and they're together and they're like, what? What's happening? And they literally say, uh, and all were amazed and greatly perplexed, saying to one another, what can this mean? I'll tell you what it means. Babel is being reversed. The language confusion at Babel is being undone for the sake of the scattered families to be brought in. This is like highly stylized narrative storytelling right here in Acts to show you, to show you that Babel is being reversed in the spirit-filled church. The church, this new mobile temple, filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God is on the move. Okay, but Babel is being reversed for a reason. 
Remember God's goal in creation? The goal of creation is that we would dwell in God's life-giving presence forever and ever in a world without end. Let me tell you this. God has never abandoned that plan. Contrary to some current pop theology, God hasn't called an audible and said, you know what, let's throw away the whole original heaven and earth idea and let's just do eternal disembodied bliss in heaven forever. No, that's not how this story ends. The first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible perform, er, form a paralleled bookend. Later today, go and read these four chapters and you'll be in wonder at their paralleled and their, the, how they parallel and connection and, and connect. Remember when we used our imaginations to picture how the Eden Project would develop over time? A global garden city filled with people where God himself will be the source of life and light, no tears, no pain, no sin. Listen to Revelation 21. This is like the final chapters of the Bible. This is how the Bible ends. The story is ending. Listen to it. John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling of God is with humanity. He will take up residence with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will not exist any longer and mourning, nor mourning or wailing or pain for the former things have passed away. God never abandoned his original plan. God gets his good and glorious way in the end. If you are in Jesus, this is your future. Basking in the eternal goodness of God's presence, fully and completely satisfied in him. The psalmist says that in his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let me give you this closing thought. The story of the Bible is the true story of the whole world. And it is absolutely epic and amazingly good. It's the story of a God who pursues us in the wilderness, who loves us despite our sinfulness and rebellion, who has a relentless desire to dwell with us. Listen to, these, listen to this account of Abraham's faithfulness in the book of Hebrews that Gerald read this morning. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as, an, as, inherit, as his inheritance. He went out without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith. For he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Why? Why did Abraham do all this? It tells us right here in the text. Because Abraham was confidently 
looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. Abraham knew a small fraction of the story. He knew a small piece of what we know. He never knew the glories of the tabernacle or the temple. He never saw the miracle of the incarnation. He didn't experience the wonders of Pentecost. He didn't have the writings of Paul or the book of Revelation. Yet on the heels of the judgment at Babel, he trusted God. By faith, he obeyed God. He went where God told him to go and did what God told him to do. Why? Because he saw what God was up to. He had enough of the story in his bones to move in faith. He had a sliver of a vision of the eternal goodness of that global garden city. How much more should we gathered now, today, in the templing presence of God, here, now, filled with the Spirit of God, how much more should we move forward in faith? Has this story, pride, opened the inner chambers of your heart? Do you have a better sense of what God has done for you, what he's up to, what Jesus has done for you? You and I are thousands of miles and thousands of years removed from that ancient scene at Babel. Yet, God has called us here today. We were scattered and confused, yet here we are today, gathered in his templing presence. Let us emulate Abraham and go where God tells us to go and do what God tells us to do in faith, fueled, by an unwavering hope that he will dwell with us and we with him always and forever, world without end. Amen.